Psalm 38 is entitled, A Psalm of David for a Memorial. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand is pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Lord, All my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my kinsmen stand far off. Those who seek my life lay snares for me, and those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction, and they devise treachery all day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. And I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no arguments. For I hope in you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord my God. For I said, may they not rejoice over me, who when my foot slips would magnify themselves against me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. But my enemies are vigorous and strong, and many are those who hate me wrongfully, and those who repay evil for good. They oppose me because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Father, we pray that now you would make haste to help us. God, whether we feel what David felt in this psalm tonight or not, the the truth is that our sins are too much for us to carry. Thank you that Jesus has carried them for us, paid for them for us. So tonight, even as we think about our sin, even as we think about your discipline and how to pray in the midst of all that, God, let the backdrop of it all be Christ who has borne our sins so that while we may suffer now for them, we will not suffer forever. Thank you for him. Magnify him and help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled the the sermon tonight, Open Wounds, Closed Mouth, because I think those are the two main realities that David is describing here in this psalm. He's describing open wounds, verse 5a particularly, My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. My wounds are open. God has laid open wounds on me because of my sin. Open wounds, closed mouth. Verse 13b, I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. So God wounded David and his wounds were open because of his sin. And yet, while his wounds were open, David's mouth in some ways was closed. And we're going to think about both of those things tonight. Those are going to be the two main headings uh, as we work through and worship through Psalm 38. But before we before we look at open wounds and closed mouth, let me just give you a little background on what's happening here. 
Um, Why is David writing this psalm? Well, uh, it's obvious that the reason he's writing is because he was suffering. Right. We see that all through the psalm. Verse three, there's no soundness in my flesh. There's no health in my bones. Verse eight, I groan because of the agitation of my heart. It's all through the psalm. David is suffering. And so he's crying out to the Lord in the midst of his suffering. But we also notice, I think it's, it's fairly obvious just on the top of the page, that David is suffering because of his sin. Read verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. And verse 5. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly, because of my foolishness, because of my sin. So David is writing in an instance where he's suffering and he's crying out to the Lord for mercy, but he's also recognizing the suffering that I'm undergoing is a result, an earthly result of my sin. And we can read David's life and we can say, well, which time is he talking about? Is he talking about when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and God took his child from him, the child that was born of that relationship, and God placed a curse on his family and said, you're always going to have someone in your family who's rising up against you, Second Samuel 11 and 12. He may be talking about that occasion. He may be thinking of the time when, at the end of Second Samuel, with great pride, he decided he was going to take a census of the people to determine how great David really was. And God laid a plague on the kingdom because of David's pride. He may be referring to what the author of Kings says in 1 Kings 1.6 when he points out that David was not a very good father. David did not discipline his boys. And he had that come back and bite him a number of times. And maybe that's the, the sin and the consequences that he's wrestling with here. Or maybe it's some other sin that we don't know about and some sickness that God laid on him because of that sin. We're not exactly sure which occasion David is talking about, but it's enough to know that David was a sinner. And that on a number of occasions, including in this psalm, God caused David to suffer because of his sin. God chastised David because of his sin. And it's enough to know, too, that we may suffer similarly. Similarly, For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Hebrews 12:6. And so we may walk through the same experiences that David walks through. Perhaps different sins and perhaps different sufferings, but we will be chastised by the Lord for our sins if He loves us. And so it's possible tonight, as you try to apply this to yourself, that you can think of some specific sins in your life that have come back to bite you. Maybe you can think of some specific sins that are coming back to bite you right now as you live in April of 2009. Or perhaps the sins aren't yet coming back to bite you. You're just committing them right now. And if you would stop and think about it for a moment, you realize they will come back and bite you and you need to repent. So wherever you're at tonight, we're all sinners. And we're all going to have chastisement in our lives. And some of us are in the midst of it. And some of us have had it in the past. Some of us it's coming in the future. And in any of those cases, the Holy Spirit has something to teach you. Whoever you are. Through Psalm 38 and through the experience of David. So I want you to think about what David says tonight with me again under two categories. Open wounds, closed mouth. So first, open wounds. David says again in verse 5, My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. So just a few questions about David's open wounds. First, where did those wounds come from? What was the source of David's 
wounds. And there are actually several answers in the psalm that we need to look at and balance them together. First, we can say from the first three verses that David's wounds were God's doing. They were God's doing. Isn't that what he says? O Lord, verse 1, rebuke me not in your wrath, chasten me not in your burning anger, for your arrows have sunk deep into me and your hand is pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. David's wounds, he says, were God's doing. He recognized this is from the Lord. Now he's going to tell us as we get down into verses 11 and 12 and, and, and following that he suffered also because of his enemies. But before he tells us that, he's telling us here that his trials ultimately were from the hand of God. Again, verse 3, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. Why would God cause David to suffer? Well, we said it already. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So when David sins and then bad things happen to him, that's not just happenstance. And it's not just the laws of nature kind of coming back against him. When you do something wrong, kind of the laws of nature come back upon you. No, this is God's direct intervention. This is God saying, David, you did this, and I'm going to teach you by doing this in your life. This is God directly intervening. And we need to remember that when our sins come back and bite us. Surely they will, and for many of us they have. We need to remember that the bites that we are receiving are not happenstance. It's not just the laws of nature. It's not just um, a proverb. If you, if you do something wrong, something bad will happen to you. It's not karma. When our sins come back and bite us, it is the direct intervention of God who loves us and who disciplines those he loves. It's not that God hates us. He doesn't chastise us because he hates us. He chastises us because he loves us. And that's what he's doing with David. Just to just to give you kind of the background, the biblical passage behind that. Just listen. You don't necessarily have to turn, but just listen to Hebrews chapter 12, where the Bible gives the longest uh, direct teaching about God's discipline on those he loves. Hebrews 12:5 says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God wounded David, not because he was his enemy, but because he was his friend, and wounds from a friend can be trusted. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And so God's arrows, David says, were sunk deep, verse 2, into David's chest for David's own good. So that in verse 18, he would repent of his sin and confess it. So that in verses 21 and 22, he would actually cry out to the Lord for help. So that his faith would grow in verse 15. That he would learn to hope in the Lord. For all those reasons, for all those good reasons, God was wounding David 
And anyone who's been wounded, anyone who's grown in faith will tell you that as Christians, we don't grow the best when times are easy. We grow the best when times are the hardest, don't we? It's not like a plant that can't survive the winter. We actually grow the best in the winter or in the fiery furnace. And so for all those reasons, we see that David's wounds were for David's good and they were God's doing. But where else did they come from? Secondly, David tells us that David's wounds were also David's fault. They were God's doing, verses 1 through 3, but in verses 3 through 5, they were David's fault. There is no health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. And then again in verse 18, he confesses his sin, that that's the problem. David's wounds were God's doing, but they were actually David's fault. In other words, David couldn't blame God. David couldn't turn to God and say, what are you doing? Why is this happening to me? David knew why this was happening to him. David knew why God was making him suffer. He knew that it was God's justice for his sin. And he also knew that it was God's mercy to him. David probably knew the, the content that we know as Romans 8.28 before it was written down. David knew that God was working these things together for his good, even though it hadn't been written yet. David knew, though it hadn't been written yet, that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. David knew those things. And so as he looked at this, he couldn't blame God and he could actually thank God. God, these things are my fault. This difficulty is my fault. I brought it on myself, but I know that though it's your justice, it's also your mercy. David couldn't blame God. And there are a couple of lessons that we can learn from him. The first is obvious. We can't blame God either when we suffer, can we? Suffering may come, yes, from his hand, but it's not his fault. If you sin and you suffer because of your sin, though God is the one who's making you suffer, he's not to blame. You are, right? And very often our sufferings can be traceable to a specific sin. If we take the time to think it out, sometimes we can tell how our sufferings are traceable to specific sins in our lives. And even if we can't trace it back and say, well, I know I'm suffering right now for some specific thing that I did. Even if we can't trace it back that clearly, we know that we're all sinful enough to deserve whatever we get. Right. Even if God is bringing hardship into our life, not as a result of our sin, we still can't blame him. Because we are all sinful enough to deserve whatever we get. So don't blame God. But secondly, when you suffer, look for cause and effect. Look for cause and effect. It's not always there. There's not always a direct, obvious cause for your suffering. There's not always a direct, obvious sin that connects to your suffering. Job is a wonderful example of that, right? God wasn't chastising Job because Job was overtly sinning against the Lord. There was another purpose. So don't think that any time you suffer, it has to be your sin. But at the same time, don't just assume, oh, well, God wouldn't chastise me for my sin. I'm forgiven. No. You're forgiven eternally, but he may chastise you now. So when you suffer, don't don't be too introspective, but look for cause and effect. Because according to Psalm 38, sometimes we suffer because of our sins. And we need to learn to look for that. In ancient cultures, they looked for that. 
If you read history, not just church history, but history in general, when there was drought or when there was war or when there was famine or when there was plague, the people often would hold big community meetings and say, it could be that we've sinned against the Lord. We need to pray. We need to repent of our sins. And perhaps that's the reason for the suffering we're undergoing. Maybe sometimes they were right. Maybe sometimes they were wrong. But the point is they at least thought the thought. Maybe this is our fault. Maybe this is not just a freak of nature kind of thing. Maybe this is our fault. And I think in our culture, perhaps we're too, sometimes too scientific about things. We're going to come back to that, but we can be so scientific or have such a wimpy view of God or a low view of our sin that we never even think about the possibility that difficulty may be a chastisement from him. And we need to learn to think that way. So exercise caution. Don't just always assume that it's sin, especially when you're looking at someone else's suffering. That's not really your job to figure out why someone else is suffering. It's your own. So exercise caution, but look for cause and effect. And if you find that your suffering may be caused by some specific sin, then you need to do what David did. You need, verse 18, to confess your iniquity. And you need, verse 3, to accept the consequences of your iniquity as from the Lord's hand. And you need to pause and thank God for Jesus. Because though in Jesus you may suffer now, and God disciplines those whom he loves, in Jesus the suffering won't be forever. There's no eternal judgment. There's no condemnation hanging over you. So David's wounds were God's doing, but they were David's fault. And thirdly, David's wounds, interestingly, were partially carved by man's hands. In verses 11 and 12, and then again in verse 16, and then again in verses 19 and 20, David speaks about his opponents. And it's clear that some of David's sufferings seem to be some sort of internal sickness, but some of them also have to do with wounds, perhaps that other people have laid upon him. And so all I want to say is simply this, that God's causing of our suffering and man's carving of the wounds are not necessarily incompatible. Are they? God can use men, even sinful men, to bring about the chastisement that he wants in our lives. We see that in Genesis 50, verse 20, don't we? Joseph's brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God was working that. God was using their sin for his good purposes. Partially to discipline Joseph for his arrogance, but even bigger than that, to save the whole family. The same thing in Habakkuk. You remember the prophet Habakkuk, he's talking to God and he says, God, I don't understand why you're letting your people get away with all these sins. And God says, I'm not going to let them get away with it. I'm going to send the Chaldeans, those wicked, terrible Chaldeans to come and judge my people. And he says, the Chaldeans, they're worse than us. And God says, I'll take care of them, too, but I will use them to discipline you. And that's what's happening to David. God is apparently using some other people who don't like David and who are themselves sinning. But God is also turning that and using that in David's life for discipline. The classic example is not a discipline example, but an example where God used sinful people to do the work of, of carving is Jesus, right? In Acts 2.23, Peter says that Jesus was handed over by the predetermined plan of God, and yet it was you, he says, who crucified him. And he, there's a balance there, isn't there? God was disciplining Jesus, not for Jesus' sin, but for our sin. And yet, He was using sinful hands 
somehow to do that. And we have to, we have, to have a, a view of God that's nuanced enough to understand that he can use our sin without promoting it and causing it and being the author of it. And he uses it for good. So be reminded then that just because someone else is doing you wrong doesn't necessarily mean that you're not under God's discipline. Someone else may be doing you wrong and that may be God's discipline. In fact, in verses 19 and 20, David says that the wrong that was happening to him were, was that people were repaying him, verse 20, evil for good. And so he could have looked at that and said, well, I, they're, they're mad at me because I'm following God, and so they're punishing me. Therefore, this isn't the Lord's discipline. This is just something bad that's happening to me. But he understood they're not, they're not mad at me because of this sin that I did. They're mad at me because of the right things that I did. And yet God is using the, their anger over the right things I did to demonstrate his anger and his chastisement over the wrong things that I did. Do you see that? They're coming at it from a wrong angle, but God is coming at it from a right angle and using it. So don't think that just because someone's hurting you wrongly that it's not necessarily God's discipline or that you are necessarily in the right in every area of your life. And don't think because someone else is harming you that God doesn't have good intentions in the midst of all of that suffering. David's wounds were carved out by men's hands, but they were designed by God's heart to teach David a lesson and to do him good. God's doing, David's fault, man's hands. Secondly, briefly, what kind of wounds were they? What kind of wounds was David suffering? I think we'll suffer the same kinds that will help us to look closely He was suffering, first of all, emotional wounds, emotional wounds all through the passage. Verse six, I'm bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. He was mourning. Verse eight, I'm benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart, emotional difficulty. The light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. I don't think David is saying he literally went blind. I think he's saying that his world just went dim. Because of his sin, he was struggling inwardly. Verse 17, I'm ready to fall and my sorrow is continually before me. Sorrow, mourning, groaning, agitation. David was suffering mental anguish, a broken heart, he says in verse 8. Anxiety in verse 18 about his soul. All those things kind of seem natural, don't they? I mean, we expect that when we sin, we're going to undergo some mental anguish. And that eventually God's going to break our heart. And that we may have some anxiety saying to ourselves, can there be forgiveness for someone like me who knew that was wrong and who keeps doing it over and over again? And we start to question. We expect that. All those things seem normal, that we would have emotional wounds. But I want you to see that David's wounds weren't simply inward. They were outward. We've talked about this already, but just notice it again in verse 7. My loins, that's a physical thing, are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. Physical. Verse 3, there's no soundness in my flesh. Verse 10, my heart throbs, my strength fails me. So David was suffering inwardly, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, but God also made him suffer outwardly, physically. And I just want, again, to remind you, as I've done before, that when you are sick, when you are sick, there will almost surely be a scientific reason for it. And Lord willing, there will be a scientific cure for it. But that may not be the end of the story. 
when you are sick, there will be a scientific reason. There hopefully will be a scientific cure, but there may be more than science alone to your sickness. God may have put science and sickness together in place in your life to rebuke you for your sin or to teach you something. And so it may it may not always be the case. It may not even usually be the case that when we're sick, there's sin behind it. But again, we need to at least ask the possibility, especially if we know there's unrepentant sin in our lives. And when we say that God may may bring about sickness, physical difficulty as a result of sin, where again, we're not just saying this is the laws of nature. I mean, it may God may use the laws of nature. It may be that you spent your whole life as a chain smoker and now you have lung cancer. And that's a chastisement from the Lord. Not an eternal punishment, but an earthly one. But it also may, may be something that doesn't seem immediately obvious to connect. In other words, your sin may be ungratefulness and God may give you the flu for a few days to teach you to stop whining about having to go to work and to make you glad that you get to go to work. Or you may be complaining and God may give you a sore throat. Or you may, like me a few weeks ago, be yelling at your kids and God may make you so sick to your stomach that you can barely talk anymore for a few days. God can use sickness, physical difficulty, to chastise us for our sins. Don't assume, again, that that's always what he's doing because you'll drive yourself crazy and you'll become very judgmental towards other people. But don't ignore the possibility either. Sin sometimes results in physical wounds. So David here, big, big picture, David is dealing with open wounds. Wounds that were both emotional and physical Wounds that were caused by his own sin and yet handed out by God, both for his discipline and because God was working for his good in them. The second piece of the puzzle is how does David respond to these open wounds? Well, the Bible says he responds with a closed mouth. Verses 13 and 14. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a man who does not hear, in whose mouth are no arguments. Open wound, closed mouth. Now he also says closed ears here too, right? He says, I'm like a deaf man who doesn't hear. I think what he's saying is, when all my enemies are criticizing me and slandering me, I don't listen. So some of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon, the the great preacher of the 1800s, and he had a lecture that he would give to his Bible college students called the blind eye and the deaf ear. And he said, as a minister, you have to have always have one blind eye and one deaf ear so that when someone begins to gossip in your church, you can turn the blind eye and the deaf ear to them and not hear it. Well, David is saying every Christian has to have one deaf ear to turn towards people who mock you and criticize you and slander you. And we should note that well, that he had closed ears. But I don't want to linger there because I think the most significant thing is that he had a closed mouth. Open wounds, closed mouth. Verse 13, I'm like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Verse 14, I'm like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no arguments. I don't think David means that he couldn't talk. I think David means that he decided not to talk. He decided to close his mouth in the midst of his suffering. Now, what does that mean and what does that not mean? Well, it doesn't mean that David couldn't groan because he tells us in verse 8b that he did groan it doesn't mean that he didn't sigh over his sins because it tells us in verse 9 that he did sigh 
So a closed mouth doesn't mean that you can't groan. It doesn't mean that you can't sigh to the Lord. Sometimes groaning when you're suffering is all you can do. Doesn't Paul say in Romans 8.26 that we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. So God forbids us grumbling, but He doesn't forbid us groaning. He doesn't forbid us agonizing. So when we say David closed his mouth, it wasn't that he, he just pretended like there was no problem and that he didn't groan. And when he says he closed his mouth, it doesn't mean that he didn't pray either. This whole psalm is a prayer, isn't it? Oh, Lord, verse 1. Oh, my God, verse 21. Oh, Lord. He's talking to God the whole way through. So when we say you have open wounds, you should close your mouth, it doesn't mean you don't pray. It doesn't mean you don't groan inwardly to the Lord. What does it mean? I think just one thing, very simply, from verse 14. When your wounds are open because of God's discipline, you close your mouth. And what that means, verse 14, is that you don't argue. You don't argue. I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no arguments. When God opens wounds on you, don't argue. First of all, don't argue with man. Don't argue with the people who seem to be carving those wounds. Don't retaliate. Don't murmur against them. Don't lecture them. Don't argue with them, he says. Now, there's a great example of this from the life of David in 2 Samuel. Let me read it to you from chapter 16. This is after Absalom, David's son, had rebelled against him and David is having to flee the city of Jerusalem. Listen to him as he is wounded and yet doesn't argue against the person who's doing the wounded. When King David, this is 2 Samuel 16:5. When King David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were at his hand and at his left. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on the way and Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with him. And as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. Could you respond like that? David says, perhaps this is from the Lord. Perhaps the Lord has told him to curse me. Perhaps this is what I deserve for my sin. And if it is, then Psalm 38 in my mouth are no arguments. I'm not going to argue against the people who are carving my wounds. And even more importantly, when David says that he closed his mouth and that he didn't argue, I think he means that he didn't argue with God. 
In my mouth are no arguments. Why? For I hope in you. He didn't question God, which is different from asking God questions. It's not wrong to ask God questions. God, I don't understand what you're trying to do, what you're trying to teach me. That's different from questioning. Questioning is when you doubt God, when you blame God, when you accuse God, when you vent your anger towards God, when you tell God this is not fair. And David says, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm not going to argue with you. In my mouth are no arguments. For me, more autobiographically, not arguing with the Lord means not murmuring and complaining when things don't go my way. I don't murmur and complain at the Lord. I just murmur and complain just to whoever's around, generally my wife. And you know what that is? When I murmur and complain, it's a veiled accusation against God. God, you're not fair. This is not right. Things aren't going the way I wanted them to, and therefore you're not treating me the way I deserve. Murmuring, complaining, accusing God, doubting God, venting your anger at God, all those things David says, I'm not going to do them. There are not going to be any arguments in my mouth. And there shouldn't be any in ours either. Let me give you another wonderful Old Testament example of this that I speak, I think explains it better than anything I can say. Job chapter 1. I'm going to read you a long passage. You might want to turn to this one. Job chapter 1, verse 1. Here's a man in whose mouth were no arguments. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 5,000 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him in his house and all that he has on every side? Have you not blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons... And your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, 
a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And then in chapter 2, Satan comes again and says, Well, if you had really hurt Job himself in his own body, then he would curse you. And God allows boils and pestilence to come upon him. And his wife says, Why do you still, verse 8, Why do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And I just ask you, as you think about what David means, in my mouth are no arguments. When God sends difficulty into your life, can you respond like Job? The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Shall we accept good from his hand and not adversity? In my mouth are no arguments against my God. My mouth is closed. And finally, why? Why does David say that? Why wouldn't David argue against the Lord? Why was David's mouth closed? And why should our mouth be closed in this way when we suffer? Well, first of all, simply because it's sin. But from this psalm specifically, our mouth should be closed, first of all. David's mouth was closed, first of all, because he knew he didn't deserve anything from the Lord's hand. He didn't deserve anything. And so he wouldn't argue when God gave him something that he didn't like. Arguing is the speech of the person who thinks that God owes him something. Complaining is the speech of the person who thinks that he deserves something. But as Christians, we know better, don't we? As Christians, we know that verse 4 is just as much about us as it is about David. My iniquities are gone over my head. In other words, you hear people say, I've had it up to here, or I'm up to here in debt. Well, David says, I'm up to here over my head in sin. My iniquities have gone over my head. There's so much, so many. The burden is such a weight that I can't even carry it. David knew he didn't deserve anything from the Lord, and we do too if we're Christians. As Christians, we ask God and trust God to give us what we don't deserve. And so anytime we suffer, we have no reason to argue. Have you ever heard someone say, or maybe said yourself, I don't understand what I did to deserve this. I think we're all tempted to feel that way even if we don't say it. I don't understand what I did to deserve this. But it's not out of wisdom that we ask that question. Because we may very well have done something to deserve this. Verse 5 may very well be true of us. My wounds are foul and fester because of my folly. And even if we haven't done anything directly to deserve this specific suffering, we know that it's true that our sins are still great enough that any suffering we undergo will not be more than we deserve, will it? In fact, no matter how great we suffer, even if we suffer as Job or as David, we're still not getting all that our sins deserve. For the wages of sin is death, isn't it? We deserve hell. 
And if we deserve hell, why should we murmur about a headache? If we deserve hell, why should we murmur about sickness? If we deserve hell, why should we bellyache about the economy? We have no reason to argue with God. And so instead of complaining about our sorrows, we should actually be thanking God that we're still alive on this earth to experience them. That He hasn't thrown us into the lake of fire. And instead of complaining about our sorrows, we should be thanking God for heaven where every tear will be wiped away. And for Jesus, who in spite of our sins, has made that possible for us. And instead of murmuring about our sorrows, we should be applying to God for comfort in the midst of them. Instead of accusing Him, we should be asking Him for help, as David does in verses 20 and 21. Excuse me, 21 and 22, when he says, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Kind of almost seems like David shouldn't be able to ask that, doesn't it? He says, I'm suffering because of my own sin. It's my own fault. And so logic would say, well, if you're suffering and it's your own fault, then you have no right to come to God and ask Him to help you. That's crazy talk. And David says, you're right. I don't have any right to come to God to ask Him, but who knows if maybe He'll be merciful to me in the midst of this. And that's the way we should respond. Instead of murmuring, we should say, God is doing this. I deserve it. He's going to work my good, but I'm also going to come to Him and ask Him to hold me up in the midst of it. And that brings me to the other reason why we shouldn't complain about our suffering, why our mouths should be closed. And that's because we have hope in God. That's the main reason why David's mouth was closed and why there were no arguments in it, because he hoped in God. Now look again, beginning in verse 13. I, like a deaf man, do not hear, and I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no arguments. Why? For because I hope in you, O Lord. He didn't argue, verse 14, because verse 15, his hope was in God, not his circumstances, not his difficulties. His hope was in God. And your hope when you suffer needs to be in God. You need to hope in God and know that, verse 15b, he will answer. He will answer your prayers. David prays in verse 1 that God wouldn't chasten him. And we know that God won't chasten us forever, will he? Psalm 103 says God won't be angry with us forever. David asks in verse 16 that God wouldn't allow his enemies to rejoice over him. And we know that God answers that prayer. Our enemies won't rejoice over us forever, will they? David asks that God wouldn't forsake him in verse 21. And God answered that as well. In fact, if you read the story of David, you see that God answered these prayers in remarkable ways. David died a happy and a triumphant old man. In spite of all the pain that he had been through, much of which was his own fault, God answered. And God will, verse 15, answer you as well. If not here, then in eternity. Revelation 21 says it like this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the, tabern- from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And... He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. 
There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. God will answer your prayers for help. If not here, then in eternity. Hope in God. Hope in God also because he will answer your enemies. Now look again at verse 15. He's been talking about how his enemies are accusing him and how he's closing his mouth. And then the next thing he says is, I hope in you, Lord, you will answer. And he may have a double meaning. He may mean you will answer my prayers, but he may also mean you'll answer my enemies. I'm not going to answer them. I'm not going to argue against them because you will answer them. And again, God did this in amazing ways for David. Saul constantly tried to kill David. And Saul eventually was struck in battle and killed himself. Shimei, this man that we just read about, was cursing David. And eventually when David came back to power, Shimei knew he was in big trouble and he came back to David on his knees, groveling for forgiveness and mercy. Absalom tried to kill David and Absalom got caught in a tree and had Joab throw three spears through his heart. Bikri, who we don't really know very much about, but after Absalom, Bikri, a man rose up and tried to overthrow David. And instead of him overthrowing David, he got trapped in a city and Joab and the army surrounded him. And in order to keep the city intact, the people of the city threw over his head from the wall, Bikri's head. He tried to overthrow David and his head was thrown from the wall and he was killed. And here's the thing. In none of those instances did David do the killing or David have to take initiative for God to answer his enemies. In every case, David left his enemies alone. Just as he says here, I'm going to close my mouth. I'm not going to argue with them and you will answer them, O Lord. And in every case, God answered. God vindicated him and he will answer for you so that you don't have to. Hope in God. And hope in God finally because he knows what he's doing. This isn't directly from Psalm 38, but I think it's appropriate. Why did David hope in the Lord? Verse 15. Because David knew that God knew what he was doing. As I said, David, though it hadn't been written yet, understood the principle that is behind Romans 8.28. David knew that Though he had sinned and though this was God's discipline and though people were sinning against him, that God was going to work all this for his good because he loved God and was called to God's purposes. God knows what he's doing. He was working good in David's sorrow. What good? We don't know all the reasons because we don't know exactly which situation David is in in this Psalm. We don't know what the exact historical background is, but at the very least, we know that David learned to trust God more deeply because of his sorrow. We see that in verse 15. We know that David learned his lesson and was brought to repentance, and that was good. Verse 18. What good did God work from David's sorrows? Well, one of the good things that he did was he gave us Psalm 38. I hope you have been helped tonight. And if you've been helped tonight, then you can trace back the history of what God's doing and say, I wouldn't have been helped tonight if there weren't Psalm 38. And there wouldn't be Psalm 38 if David hadn't been sorrowing over whatever it was. And God worked that for not only David's good, but for mine. And so therefore, you look at your own sufferings, you look at your own frustrations, you look at the things that, that just boggle your mind and... You say to yourself, I don't know what good God is going to do from this, but I know he will. 
And I know Romans 8.32 that if he didn't spare his own son but delivered his own son over for me, surely he's not going to let this little thing or this big thing ruin my life. He's given me his son. He's not going to let me down now. He's going to work this out. He knows what he's doing and so I will hope in him. So let me ask you, as you go out tonight, whether you find yourself at some point on a hospital bed or in a funeral home or in an unemployment line or in the principal's office or having to stay late at work again and you hate being there or on the side of the road with a flat tire or whatever it is for you this week, will you be able to say what David says in verse 15? In the midst of your sorrow and your struggle and your frustration, will you be able to say, I hope in you, O Lord, and you will answer.